everyone, and welcome back to Then Again, the podcast of the Northeast Georgia History Center. I am your host on this episode, Marie Bartlett, the director of the Ada May Ivester Education Center here. And today, our special guest is Greg Grafois, the Associate Artistic Director of the Gainesville Theatre Alliance and Director of VFA Acting at Brunel. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me here and letting me come in from the cold. Absolutely. <laughs> Could you tell us a little bit more about yourself, your background, and the Gainesville Theatre Alliance? Uh, yes. So I am come here to, to Brunel via way of Chicago, where I lived for the last 11 years. I moved there after I graduated from uh, University of Iowa. Um, I always uh, joke about, like, I got my master's in make-believe. Uh, <laughs> That's um, great. And I've been living in Chicago for the last 11 years, and then um, primarily working as an, as an actor and an educator. I was a teaching artist for um, almost all of my years while I was there, and then started teaching at the collegiate level in 2020. Primarily what I'm kind of known for right now professionally, because um, I haven't I mean, I haven't done a show since 2019 as far as being an actor, um, but I'm an intimacy director or intimacy choreographer. So helping to create a culture of uh, trauma-informed consent-based cultures for folks who are telling uh, and navigating challenging stories on stage. So, yeah, that is uh, what I do, a.k.a. don't sleep. <laughs> so many things. So many things. Yes. And um, can you tell our listeners who might not know what the Gainesville Theater Alliance is, what what is the Gainesville Theater Alliance? Oh, yeah. So um, so GTA, GTA is a, a combination of, of two universities, Bernal University and the University of, Northern Ge- of North Georgia, coming together to create academically and both combined both academically and uh, for productions. So all the productions that are, are done here on Bernal's campus or UNG's campus is in uh, is in collaboration with the two universities. Because I didn't realize that until fairly recently that it was indeed just a collaboration between those two universities, which is amazing. Yes, and it's been, I mean, oh gosh, they always tell me the year and I always forget, oh, no. but I want to say 70s. 70s mm-hmm. sounds about right. How I've contextualized it is for now, historically women's college, UNG, I think back then, uh, Gainesville Community College, if I'm not, if, uh, hopefully I'm remembering, I'm not misremembering that, but it's just like, we have technicians, we have stages, uh, you have women, we have men. We're like, we need to come together. Like it just specifically, like all jokes aside, it's just a matter of um, it, we are we are better combined than we are separate. And we are, um, I, one of my favorite quotes is diversity builds capacity. So that which I am unable to do, if I bring somebody else in the room who can do that, then we're actually able to do more because we have more knowledge in the space. Yeah, that's great. That's a great quote. So this spring, you are doing The Crucible. It is going on stage in just a couple days. Um, I read your a little about the show, and here's the quote that's from on the website. It says, The Crucible, winner of the 1953 Tony Award for Best Play, this captivating drama about the Puritan purge of witchcraft in Old Salem is both a gripping historical play and a timely parable of um, for our contemporary audience um, of our contemporary society. So how did you select The Crucible to be this year's spring show? Well, I was actually not part of the season selection on this. So The Crucible is a show that I inherited. If I could be so, if I could be so candid, I, it's not a show that I loved, to be honest. Like, I was just like, ah, I mean, I knew, I, I did know about the Salem Witch Trials beforehand and such. And I actually said this to to the students, the actors, um, and there's 30 students in this cast, by the way. Um, so there'll be plenty of folks on the stage. Um, but something that I said to them, I said, it's actually probably best 
that I don't love this place because then I can look at it objectively and I'm not trying to have y'all live in an idea that I've always had about a play that I've revered in a way. I have grown to a place of respecting the story. Um, that is the space that I'm in right now. Um, and I do love this production. I think it's because of the students that I get to work with both on stage and both um, the, the students who are, I have a movement director, um, I have a, an assistant director, my stage management team. And so like to be able to work with that many that many students, even though I am horribly outnumbered, um, <laughs> um, has been a great delight. And to be able to navigate this story has been, I'm trying to find the, the best word for it. I want to say illuminating. It is, uh, it is I think, the, the challenge of watching something happen in cycles. You know, that old adage, you know, th those who don't learn history are doomed to repeat it. But I'm like, I, I learned this, but I don't think the right people necessarily learned this. And so, the, um, so that that part has been challenging. But we have um, have been instructing the students, thinking about their characters, like where is the light? Where because it, it's so easy to live in the darkness of of 1692 Salem, Massachusetts. But like each of these individuals finds their light in one way or another. I mean, one could say hope, but I'm just going to say light because I think there are folks who are coming out of very specific type of darkness. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So were you, how, how familiar were you with the show and the Salem Witch Trials, the history itself? I know everyone kind of knows like, oh yeah, Salem Witch Trials, but how much did you know about the characters and that you were bringing to life essentially? Because this is a partially historically based drama and then also partially fictionalized. How do you kind of navigate that line uh, and where did your research kind of start? Um, so I purposely, because there are, there are myriad of, I believe there are three or four productions out, some that are filmed on stage, some that are like movies. Mm -hmm. Daniel Day-Lewis playing John Proctor is the one I think that everybody knows about. Oh yeah, about. And Winona Ryder. Yes, yeah. mm -hmm. um, but I I have not, because I didn't have like, you know, uh, I, I didn't have that fervor for this piece. I actually haven't seen any of them. And I still haven't seen any of them purposely because I didn't want that to influence in any kind of way, shape or form this production. I will go back and probably watch it, probably. Because I'm just like, oh, do I really want to sign myself up to watching a different iteration of this lovely, <laughs> this lovely story? So I knew about the, I knew that it happened in 1692. That which I did not know was it only lasted, it was February, it started February 1692 and then in May of 1693. Mm -hmm. So something of such significance only lasting 15 15 months, but having such a profound impact is something that resonates with me in a very profound way. How history doesn't actually need as much time to be as impactful or to be long lasting. I know they said the, you know, the, the, the words of witch hunt versus wizard hunt and such. And it was 200 people, 200 people accused, 19 people, uh, 30 people who were found guilty and 19 that were killed, 14 women and five men. So those are things that I, I kind of knew but kind of was reminded of along the way. And that which is a little eerie to me because I know folks have very specific things around the number 13. Mm -hmm. But John Proctor, the play ends with, sorry, spoiler alert. <laughs> the, the play ends with, um, with John, John Proctor going to the gallows and he's the 13th person that is, and it's like said in the play and, and just like that in itself. Um, really resonates with me in a very specific way, that number 13, and yeah. It's really interesting. I was familiar with the play because I had to read it as part of my American Lit class in high school. So I we read the play all together, and then we also watched the movie, the one with Daniel Day-Lewis and Winona Ryder. 
And then I have not actually seen it as a stage play, but I have been very fascinated by the idea of the Salem Witch Trials, reading about it, historical fiction. The History Center actually did during the pandemic. We experimented with some short films um, since we have this lovely digital studio, which we are in right now. And we found the transcript for the trial of Bridget Bishop, who was one of the first to be on trial uh, for witchcraft in Salem. And we essentially just reenacted the script as it was like the the trial transcript and that was very just wild to see like oh my goodness like these people had no chance really um this idea of spectral evidence that you didn't have to really submit any type of physical evidence in court that this one person could just say her i saw her spirit pinch me and then that's enough to hang someone is just you know to us it was outrageous uh but Obviously, it happened. What is something that you feel like you have learned while preparing this show? Ooh, um, there's two things. Uh, one, something that you just said um, reminds me of a, of a quote, and hopefully I do not butcher, said, quote, an uninformed majority will always lose the battle of information against a, quote, informed minority, especially if that minority is viewed as the authority. In other words... It is so easy for folks to follow the person who be, who we believe has the most information because they are um, because of the position or the status that they hold in the society. But um, something that I uh, were very early on in talking about this play, and I'm not trying to make light of the Salem witch trials, but something that I, I how I spoke about the play, I would say like, oh, this is just a game of telephone that's gone horribly wrong. Like it's just the fact of it's not misinformation, it's lack of information. Um, and something that I, I specifically play with in this, um, in this iteration of, in this production is folks coming to, while act one, scene one is occurring, there are folks, townspeople are coming to the window and hearing just a little bit of a snippet of a something and then running away and how easily one can build a whole story without full context. And that to me is, is the core cause of the hysteria that occurs during that time is so it's not misinformation because we're in the age of information now like we literally walk around with pocket computers <laughs> um, but it is a matter of who got what information and how how that information is only perceived through one's personal lens and so that which is kind of an undercurrent uh, for all of this that I don't think we talk about enough is the vengeance that was being that was being executed during that time to essentially take people's land. Because if you were accused, so yeah, if you were accused or you confessed, uh, actually let me correct, um, if you confessed to it, uh, then you had to relinquish your lands. Um, and so like Giles Corey, which is uh, famously known for being uh, crushed, uh, crushed to death, never actually admits. And so then his land can actually be passed down to his children. And so it is just like utilizing the children, weaponizing essentially the children and saying that, you know, God is speaking through the children in order to, for the adults to enact. Very damaging acts of harm. Second thing that really, like, it still really vibrates with me and I don't think I've ever, uh, I don't think I've, I've found a solution to it all is fear. Uh, so the word fear pops up in the text 40 times. So it was kind of very clear to me, it was just like, what is like what is the primary thing that is happening in this space and the acronym that i've used as far as it's like kind of like our guiding our guiding like um lens for like talking about all things design and everything um and building the world is um using the acronym fear so f-e-a-r false evidence appearing real 
And so really playing around with the idea of, I think I saw a thing, I, and because, and if you get enough people to corroborate with that, how powerful that then becomes, you know? And so to me, how I'll land this plane in particular is saying, thinking about the fact that this is going to be on a stage, what it reminds me of specifically for audiences that are coming in is the power of witnessing. I mean, I think that is the ultimate call of theater, of specifically live performance, is like the thing, the performance that you are watching only happens once. There are different iterations of it on different nights. You know, there are 10 performances, please come uh, to the, the Crucible. But every single performance is going to be different depending on the conversation that is happening in the zeitgeist. How is that affecting the students that are in that production, walking into the space, how that's affecting the audience before they come in. You know, the phone call you get or the text message you get before you walk into the theater has a profound effect on what it is that you're seeing. And so ultimately wanting to play with what are we seeing, what aren't we seeing, and how we're interpreting things. And I think for the most part, how this play has historically been done is through the lens of John Proctor. And that which I challenged myself and um, was challenged by the cast to do is how do we make sure that the women in the story are being uplifted um, and their voices coming through, not trying to alter Arthur Miller's words or anything. Um, Arthur Miller, the feminism, we, the feminist, we never knew we needed, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, but it is a matter of, um, I don't know if Arthur Miller was a feminist and from what I gathered, not so much, but anyways. Um, but it is a matter of those stories are there. I didn't have to force them or anything of that nature. Like, those narratives are there. And so what is it not only to, being that the women don't have as much to say as far as text written down, how do we make sure that they're still seen mm -hmm. and their their impact and their presence is still really felt? Because you can do so much with the staging of the play, of who's where, at what time, who's yeah. being highlighted. Yeah, because ultimately the, the, the folks who are left after these men are these men are killed. Well, I mean, like I said, only five men were killed, but like mm -hmm. the repercussions of all of these, because of the like the accused are also like in prison, and the repercussions of it is what happens to all of these women. Mm -hmm. And I, I there's a there's a final moment in the play, so you have to come and watch that I that I'm attempting to highlight just that. No added text or anything like that, but just um a very specific um moment built in to kind of close out the play. I'm excited to see that and, and fascinated because I, I will be there, I believe, Thursday, the preview night. Oh, nice. Yeah. Now, this is going to be a, a slightly off-topic question, but it reminded me uh, when you said the um, informed majority can usually – I'm sorry, an informed minority can, like, basically outwit an uninformed majority. Have you ever played the game Werewolf? I literally have the card game in my no. head right now. <laughs> because I've seen that quote in conjunction with the game Werewolf. Yes, that is, and that is where I, got, I was just yeah. like, oh, yeah. I'm like, yeah, oh, yeah. Especially if they're adamant. Especially yes. if they are just, it is, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sound like old man shaking fist at Cloud right now. But the, the fact that we primarily as a society live most of our lives online and not in IRL, but that is literally like the the internet, that digital space is like the Wild West. Oh, it is. It is. Like there is the fact that there are no regulations as far as like information or anything of that nature. It is, it's terrifying. Like it is absolutely terrifying. And to me, like that is the reflection or the, uh, or one point of access as far as connecting that history of, of 1692 to our present 2024. It's mm -hmm. just... It's not, it's not from a lack of information. It is questioning the source of information mm -hmm. 
And additionally, what does what do people use that information for? Like I think of like Thomas Putnam in the in the play, utilizing Giles Corey, just simply saying like, my wife is reading books and I don't know what, you know, I, I just want to know what she's reading. Like literally that is a curiosity. I just want to know what she's reading and that leading to her literally being like accused of witchcraft because she reads women reading dangerous yeah. as opposed to men killing other men. Like it's, it's so, it's so fascinating how the beginning that which we see in the beginning of the play, which is like these girls. And I want to highlight that these girls playing in the woods is perceived to be the most dangerous part of this all. The real life consequences that is enacted by these men in power to me is like, that is the thing that is the most detrimental, mm -hmm. but it's so easy to focus on like, but the women and the witches and the girls and Abigail, like it is so easy for us to, to paint that narrative of just like, these are the actual dangerous people. Who do we decide to humanize and who do we see this? What lens do we see our stories through? Mm -hmm. you know? Who's the quote unquote good guy? Who's the quote unquote villain? Yeah. Yeah. Because I think, I mean, I, I, I think John Proctor is a villain in really? this. If you really look at I mean, there's literally, like, Kimberly, uh, Kimberly Bellflower actually has a whole play, literally has a play called John Proctor is the Villain, <laughs> where it is so, it is a matter very of. Very blatant. Yeah, very blatant. So it is a, it, it all depends on what lens you're looking at this play through. Now, to be clear, I'm not, I have not villainized John Proctor. Um, I just let him do that on his own. Um, <laughs> but that which cannot be lost, and I think it's, it's it's an uncomfortable thing to talk about, but it's a very real thing. It's like, it's not the fact that he committed adultery. It's a fact that like this was with somebody who he had authority over. Like this was a a kid, and he is an adult. And I think like that kind of gets lost in there. But it's all about like how would how do we paint the kids? Uh, how do we paint the children in this in this narrative? You know, it's so interesting that they're propped up. But if you go through the text, and, you know, this is because I've been living in this world for like the last six months of life. If you go through the text, very specifically act on scene one, Tichuba is speaking. And they're just like, you're like, you are, you are a vessel. You're going to help us. And the thing that Reverend Hale says is like, how many people? Was it two? Was it three? Was it four? And Tichuba immediately says, there was four. And you're just like, you're literally getting fed this information and just like and just like watching that happens in that same scene thomas putnam goes oh did, uh, was it i was it like was it good or good or, or or osborne and like and then literally like a page and a half later tichiba goes and then i saw goody good and i saw and you're just like you're literally watching these men just kind of feed this information into the space and then going but the kids said it and it's just like they they're kids who don't want to get in trouble <laughs> they're going to just say, yeah, 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 I saw this what thing. You said, yes. Yeah, exactly what you said. Yeah, talk about um, leading a witness. Yes. And so it is a matter, yeah, so it, so it is a matter of like, who do we trust to believe? You know, trust women, listen to women. And it's so easy to prop up John Proctor as this like, kind of like this anti-hero um, sort. But I'm just like, he's responsible for a lot of the things that occurred there. I mean, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to absolve, absolve Abigail for how she went about it, but I'm just like, the, he's the catalyst for a lot of these things. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that which I'm excited about is just kind of like letting the audience really kind of see that. Mm -hmm. So This play is obviously about the Salem Witch Trials that happened in 1692, mm -hmm. but when Arthur Miller wrote it in 1953, a couple hundred years after the fact, it was really very heavy-handedly allegory for communism and mm -hmm. the McCarthyism and the Red Scare and the communist witch hunts um, that he, you know, they use the words, you know, witch hunts for mm -hmm. the communists. And I think 
think that's probably how he got the ideas. You know, he heard this, this is a witch hunt on TV and then went and was like, ah, but when was there a real witch hunt for real, quote unquote, real witches in America? And then wrote it as an allegory for how much evidence do you really need to accuse somebody and how can that affect that person's life? Um, And I think we could think of a lot of situations that that probably applies to today, whether that be on a world scale, a national scale, a personal level. Why do you feel like this show is still important to perform today? Hmm. (laughs) Oh, this could be a whole hour (laughs) conversation if we want to. Trust me, it's not going to be, I promise you. (laughs) I promise, folks. There is something to be said about who we choose to believe And I mean, I think about like growing up, like, you know, some of my idols who, you know, now that I've gotten older, I'm just like, oh, yeah, you're not necessarily a a great person. How it was very easy to dismiss their actions because of the admiration. So action being less impactful than like an admiration of love and and, and admiring of somebody. And as you know, (laughs) <laughs> the, the the famous Batman quote, you either you know die a hero or live long enough to see yourself become a villain. As we go, um, as we careen towards an election year, this being my first uh, my first time in the South during an election uh, since my in my adult life. I mean, I I, I was in Florida, uh, but uh, I was in Florida when I turned eighteen and everything of that nature. But Florida is kind of like the extended South in a weird kind of way. Like it's yeah. it's it's a it's the only state like the further north you are, the further north you go in Florida, the further south you are. Like it's like that's the feeling. That's especially as somebody who grew up in Miami. That's just my own perspective. But as we as we are careening towards an election cycle, and thinking about how decisions that are going to be made by those who we elect are not only going to reverberate during their time in office, but continue to have a rippling effect through history. I think it is, I think the importance of this play is examination. And I think the word that I would primarily use is contextualization. It is very easy for us to only, to be very limited in our observation of something. Something I constantly tell my students, observations are made from a space of curiosity and not judgment. Because the minute that you've determined what something is, you're no longer exploring it. The moment, I mean, the difference between like, oh, you have on a red shirt versus just like, oh, I wonder what that shirt is made of. I wonder what the history of that shirt is. It's like, did somebody give you that shirt? Is that your favorite shirt? Like, then I'm in a place of curiosity. Then I'm in a place of questioning. Then I haven't reached a a final solution on something. Because we as people, like, we're nuanced. And nothing in our lives is like lives on a binary. Like we try to define so many things on a binary, but everything has nuance to it. Um, And so I ask my students constantly like to remain curious, like be exploring, asking those questions. And so as we are making decisions moving forward, how much examination are we actually delving into? And more importantly, how much are we contextualizing something not only in the present moment, but fully understanding what is going to be the future effect of the decisions that we make, the people that we that we entrust our our vote to, our like our livelihoods to, the, you know, the decision making powers. Um, and so to me it is it is simply that. We have all the information that we need. As I talked about before, we have the pocket computers. Mm-hmm. But what are you doing with that information? Mm-hmm. Truly doing with that information. So yeah. So staying curious. Absolutely. And if I may add, probably I, I would I would take from that is also withholding judgment. 
right? Mm -hmm. Staying curious, withholding judgment. Because if you already judge something, then you aren't going to truly remain curious, right? You don't want to cast that condemnation onto whatever it is. So, yeah. So we hope all of our listeners stay curious. Come out to The Crucible put on by the Gainesville Theater Alliance. It's going to be a great show. I know it. All right. So if people are curious about where to get tickets, where can they get tickets for this wonderful performance? Uh, so this performance of The of the Crucible by Arthur Miller running uh, will be running February 16th, this Friday, until February 24th. Uh, there will be 10 performances, nine performances for the public, uh, one for students. I'm so excited for the student production. And to be uh, and to acquire your tickets, all you have to do is go to the Gainesville Theater Alliance website. And if any of you are interested in getting tickets, of course, we will be linking that below. So go to the description box and you can click the link to get the tickets. But just in case uh, you would like to have it to type into your web browser, what would that website be? Be GainesvilleTheaterAlliance.org. Thank you so much for joining us today as we talk about The Crucible, this incredibly interesting story that has spoken to so many generations and continues to speak to a contemporary audience. I'm excited. I am so excited to get to see this performance and see what you've done with it. Um, so thank you so much for, for sharing your insights today. Thank you so much for, for having me. And uh, I do hope you come to the production and that which I'm the most excited about are the conversations that will occur after you see it. So thank you all for listening to Then Again from the Northeast Georgia History Center. We'll catch you next time. Then Again is a production of the Northeast Georgia History Center in Gainesville, Georgia. Our podcast is edited by Andrews Gilles. Our digital and on-site programs are made possible by the Ada May Iyster Education Center. Please join us next week for another episode of Then Again.